I'm Gustav Peggers from Orient Capital, and I'm introducing today's podcast. Orient Capital, also known as OC, is the Investor Relations Division of Link Group, and we help listed companies strengthen and maintain positive engagement with their investors. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with Paolo Casamassima, who heads up our global market intelligence team. This discussion was an opportunity for Paolo to talk about his background and take us through some of the interesting trends taking shape in our industry. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so let's uh, let's jump on in. So, Paolo, I thought what would be helpful is maybe if you can just give uh, a quick introduction um, to yourself, your background, um, and um, and what you're currently working on. Uh, Paolo Casamassima, Head of Global Market Intelligence for Orient Capital. I've been working for 15 years in uh, investor relations. And within Orient Capital, I'm responsible for shareholder analysis, targeting, perception studies, and then uh, business development across the Middle East. Fantastic. So that that last bit, our sort of growth into the Middle East market is is really interesting. So we'll probably jump back into that in a bit. Um, but just to start off, because we have, <clears throat> excuse me, because we have such a kind of range of listeners uh, listening to the podcast feed, I thought it might be quite helpful if you could just give a bit of a background as to why investor relations is so important to issuers. Obviously, it's changed over the sort of last 10 to 15 years quite dramatically. But maybe if you could give a kind of high level understanding of why IR was used to list the companies and some of the benefits of it. Well, first of all, um, we could start by saying that the IR function combines uh, three aspects uh, of the corporate finance, communication and marketing. Um, ultimately, the goal of the IR team is to make sure there is an effective communication between the publicly listed company stakeholders broadly and then more specifically its investors, current and potential investors. Essentially, the IR person, uh, which can be the IR team or from time to time it's covered between CFO uh, and perhaps management, if there is not dedicated person, needs to create awareness and understanding about the company. And that includes trying to ensure that the broader market understands the company. So we're speaking about journalists, we're speaking about the sales side that will help bring new investors, obviously brokers that are linked to the sales side. Um, it is it is supposed to ultimately help the company access capital, achieve liquidity and attain a fair valuation of the company. The IR ability is ultimately measured based on the ability to build strong relationship with investors and analysts. Okay, so it's interesting to me, obviously, IR has a kind of breadth. It covers quite a lot of the business, right? So as you say, you might be dealing with COSEC sometimes, you might be dealing with brokers, um, you're dealing internally with, with CEOs or CFOs, um, and then you're also dealing with investors and analysts. So it, it's quite an interesting functionality for sort of in-house IR, um, because obviously you're dealing with so many different facets of the business, and obviously you're exposed to so much. So in terms of that exposure and those sort of industry trends that we're seeing, I'm just wondering what you're seeing across the markets. What What's interesting right now? What's what's hot off the press? So one of the, the biggest things that have happened since I work in investor relations, I think started to happen with the pandemic. So the work from home dynamics have really changed the way the investor relation function is run because we see significantly uh, less participants to events, whether conferences or non-deal roadshows. And we we are told by clients that they are really struggling to get um, people to meet 
to find the right line to meet to organize a roadshow. So a lot of companies that used to travel, for example, from the Middle East to London or from Europe to London, they've cut budget significantly because of the difficulties in uh, organizing those roadshows. And therefore, they will bring on board third parties to sort of organize these functions for them. Function that once was also managed by brokers, corporate brokers, and with MIFID 2, this has also reduced. So a number of small cap and mid cap, they've seen the reduction of the sell side coverage. And as, as a result, they will have to be spending a lot more time looking for potential investors, targeting investors. Obviously, ESG, a big elephant in the room. We, we see news on a daily, weekly, quarterly basis about things happening. And it's very difficult actually for issuers to understand, for example, which reporting frameworks to, to follow, uh, what type of reporting to do, and how to communicate with the ESG investors. Um, so the, there is budget being shifted towards ESG. Uh, that perhaps has been taken from IR, perhaps could be from corporate roadshows moved into ESG, but yet we see difficulties in trying to really master uh, the knowledge of ESG. A big area for issuers, something that is relatively new and really started with the with the pandemic, it's the growth of webcasting. Our own division has grown uh, in revenues to more than double, uh, and that is testimony of the fact that people are engaging a lot more, whether it's uh, audio calls, video calls, recorded calls. And webcasting is just a very nice way to to have a much better engagement um, with with the investment community. So we've seen companies moving from annual webcasting perhaps to quarterly webcasting and other companies that used to never do webcasting they've started to uh, to do a first webcast uh, for example and then it's a test and they would want to do more uh, depending on the success of the first webcast we could also say the link to webcasting is the overall video content um, i would say that when i started working video content was inexistent uh, for investor relations we now see companies that start to upload their storytelling of their business on on YouTube. Now, did you know that? Uh, I personally heard about it from a few companies uh, while doing perception studies, but I had no idea that this was uh, that an institutional investor may go and look at the story of a business on YouTube. Go on. No, no, I was saying it's remarkable. I think the you know you're you're talking about the pandemic and and how as often in these times of adversity, it really drives forward technology at quite an increased rate. Part of what where we sit in IR, and especially with a lot of what you do, Paolo, in terms of market intelligence, um, your story, your narrative, what you are putting out into the world and to your investors and potential investors is so key. It's so key. And having these different technology available to allow you to do that in different methods, allowing greater accessibility for investors who may not be obviously local, um, who may be you know, worldwide, is it, just the benefit, right? This is positive for issuers. This is giving people, the issuers, the way to communicate in more ways, more accessible methods, um, and getting their story across. And, and, you know, part of that is maintaining a bit of control of that, right? Because the flip side of this is with the message boards and with Twitter and with, with investors kind of nattering yes. away online, that control can often disappear. So actually, this is a good way for 
issuers to take back a bit of that control um, and actually drive the content in a way that they think is the most productive and positive. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And so obviously speaking about webcasting and, and which is great, um, but also I just maybe maybe a little bit about perception studies and about how that fits into the IR model a bit more. Sure. So perception studies, first of all, uh, perception studies is something that when I started my 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 role, um, my, my career in investor relations nearly didn't exist. So it was a new concept at the time and maybe until three to four years ago, it was still something that was done by insurers once every four to five years. Perhaps it was done around the the announcement of a new strategy. Now we see it done as a 12 to 18 months uh, and it starts to be considered as best in class um, IR practice. I'm, I'm actually having a call in 45 minutes with an issuer and we've had three uh, respondents telling us Thank you for doing this survey. Please tell the company to do them more often. We are happy to do them in multiple formats. Um, so we see that the perception study is not just a way for a company to try to understand what the market thinks, but it's also a way for the uh, for the investor to share feedback uh, and feedback that perhaps they would not be confident in sharing face to face with a company. In uh, in perception studies, we often uh, cover, uh, we touch base on the strategy of the company. We can touch base on pretty much everything, but essentially a company is trying to put a mirror uh, in front of their actions, their performance, their communication, and trying to see whether what they see is the same as what the market sees. Is the message really well communicated? Well, we think it is, but communication may be lacking somewhere. There may be a KPI that is missing. We see ourselves as a market leading company in this sector because of X, Y, Z. What investors think? Is it the same that they are thinking or do they see us differently? Are we market leader according to them or not? There are certain things that come out of perception study uh, and this for me is probably my favorite topic is capital allocation. So very often, uh, obviously, management will spend a significant amount of time trying to to decide uh, capital deployment, dividend payout versus perhaps deleveraging uh, organic growth M&A. Surprisingly, in every perception study, we are told that investors will want to see a lower dividend up to no dividend in return for a growth strategy, an M&A strategy, and it's a it's baffling and puzzling to many IROs to hear that, but essentially think about it. You Would you like to see a 30% growth on your share price or 5% dividend and no growth? Obviously, yeah. you would like to see the participants growth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that 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 is really interesting and actually hearing about, and obviously we've spoken about this at great lengths um, since I joined, but hearing about how investors view their return on investment doesn't always tally up with what the company view. Um, uh, and as you say, so that, that communication and understanding that is really key. Um, we mentioned, uh, obviously, well, you mentioned obviously a lot of that functionality has been historically covered by brokers. I suppose one question I'd like to put to you is, as as we've heard from issuers in the past, is well, I don't need to do a perception study because I already hear from my broker. They speak to our shareholders, um, you know, they get the feedback um, and they relay that to us. How would you counter that 
because obviously based on the conversations I've had, um, you're only getting a limited amount of feedback from via your broker. Um, and that's not to dismiss the valuable work that they do, but obviously when we're doing a perception study, it's often from an anonymous perspective. Yes. So do you think first it's fair all, to say that we get a lot more truthful and transparent answers? First of all, is a lot of more truthful answers because the 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 answers we get, we openly say they are non-attributable, uh, which already gives a little bit more confidence in sharing feedback openly. Also, a broker will often give you the feedback coming from a roadshow, perhaps, of its clients, so those that trade through the bank's uh, books. Now we we get every everyone's feedback obviously a sample of everyone's feedback but we could get the feedback across four different brokers for example and then give you um, the average of the sentiment market sentiment about a specific topic and so if you have a broker that perhaps it's uh, it's bringing you a lot of hedge funds will not give you the true indication of what the market will want to see from the actions of the management uh, for the particular stock. Yeah, no, that it's it it's all hugely interesting. I think I think allow again it, it's accessibility, right? You, you're opening communication lines that perhaps weren't originally there, um, and you're allowing for more transparent feedback that you can. Re- it's, it's this is critical information that I think perhaps is overlooked, especially in the UK market, or certainly has been uh, over recent times. Absolutely. And I suppose we mentioned earlier, so obviously you said we're, we're doing a lot of work in, in, in the Middle East and, and looking to grow that market. Um, it's a fascinating market out there at the moment. It's it's really bubbling away, right, and ready, oh, to, ready to explode. So I suppose really from a regional discussion, what I'd like to know actually is what differences have you faced? Obviously, you've got such experience in the UK and Europe in terms of in, in terms of working with those those issuers. How are you finding it dealing with um, the emerging Middle East markets, and what's exciting about that? Well, one of the obvious differences for me is the difference in terms of budgets uh, and how this budget <laughs> is allocated. Now, mm-hmm. it's not just simply how bigger or smaller the budgets are, and this pretty much vary depending on the market cap rather than being Middle East or non-Middle East. But in Europe, UK, usually there is a budget allocated for annual report and PR, usually both, but at least one and the remaining will be allocated to the other IR services, whether it's shareholder analysis, perception studies, ESG, advisory work, webcasting, maybe corporate governance roadshows, which are sort of bespoke uh, rather than just the normal uh, non-deal roadshow. Um, perhaps the use of a CRM is something that it's obviously uh, part of the budget. Now in the Middle East, there are many companies that are just setting up the IR function. That's a big difference because most of the IR teams are one person as opposed to two, three, four, which have, happens to be the case in, in Europe and the UK. Sometimes we see companies that are deciding where to allocate this budget. And sometimes it's even, are we going to hire a new person? and or are we going to hire a PR company? Are we going to upgrade our annual report and perhaps make it uh, integrated report or are we going to add a sustainability report? And this budget, uh, it's the same budget that will have to be um, shared with other IR uh, activities, whether it's perception study, whether it's uh, shareholder analysis or, or you name it. One thing that is happening, however, in terms of perception studies, because 
issuers are so keen to understand, they're obviously trying to attract capital from the West, from the Western world. They're, they're really keen in trying to understand how they compare against European issuers, UK issuers. And with many of the clients that have worked with us since IPO, there is this trend of doing a post-IPO perception study around one year after the IPO, where they exactly try to see where they stand against the market. And obviously very often there is lots of room for improvement, but they are definitely keen in wanting to, to compete and be at the top when comparing to Western issuers. Hmm. That's interesting. And I suppose also, you know, you mentioned there in that kind of IPO space, obviously when a company lists and, and actually that idea of doing a perception study down the line shouldn't really matter if they've had a successful year or an unsuccessful year. Um, Correct. Because their sentiment's going to change, right? As we know, the markets have been changing incredibly quickly and, and the way investors behave is the same. Um, it can be quite rapid in its turnaround. So actually doing it, even if you think, hey, everything's going fine, everything's going great, um, actually, it might not be. Again, we speak about investor sentiment. You may think everything's going well, but actually when you get some really transparent responses from your investors it may look very differently and yeah I, I think it's a really valuable asset to do and you mentioned budget which of course um is always part of the conversation and always comes up uh when dealing with dealing with companies how do you okay let's rephrase it if a company you're speaking to says i don't have the budget for this why why should they find the budget for it like how how valuable is this? You know, like where is it a case of you know reallocating resources? Like what what do you think this really brings to the table at its core? Right, the core benefits of doing a perception study as a listed company. Why should companies be doing it? Ultimately, you're looking to achieve a fair valuation and maintain a good relationship with your investors, and you can only do that uh, if you have well, obviously, very good relations with them but you try your best to to get an understanding of what everyone is thinking. So there is, um, I remember I worked with a company that was particularly focused in what the top 25 was doing. So they were monitoring the, the shareholder uh, holdings of the top 25. They had a bonus uh, and incentive plan for the IR team and management to retain the top 25 holders. And there was no interest in respect to what the smaller investors were doing. Uh, that was a very, uh, it was a large cap company. So those that were moving the prices were not the top 25. And the, 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 it was those that were trading in and out. Uh, and that's often the case, a, isn't it? The, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so if you don't know what your investors are thinking, what's really driving your share price? How can you? Uh, how can you react to that? How can you um, essentially find the right uh, balance in terms of perhaps return on investment? How can you understand what your competitors are doing? Because one of the things that is very interesting as well with perception studies is that you think you know everything about your business, but the perception study will also tell you what investors think you're doing against your peers. So you may think you're the market leading because of whatever, your great product, an investor will say, well, you lost leadership three years ago when your company XYZ has launched this new product, has entered this new industry, and we have perhaps divested 50% and we would look to reinvest if XYZ conditions were met. 
Very often, these are things that you will not hear in a face-to-face -face meeting. We were even told in uh, perception studies, uh, feedback such as we would only invest if, for example, there was a management change, new CEO or a new strategy completely different for the one that has just been announced. We were told mm. that the ESG strategy and sustainability report that was issued by an issuer was completely wrong because, let's say, a, an oil and gas company was focusing very much on E. Well, you can't do anything about E, environmental, but you can do a lot about social and governance. Mm. Yet you're doing nothing about social and your governance well, it's poor because your board is not independent, so you're failing on all three. So the company had to scrap completely the sustainability report that was done by the experts based on the feedback that came out of the perception study. Mm. Look, I, I don't want to end on negative, but I think what what is a real key takeaway from this is it's not always going to be positive feedback, you know. Absolutely. But it can, but it can it can really be constructive. It can be really be useful, and and as you say. Look, you're preaching to the converter with me, Paolo. I think they're a really underutilized um, piece of intelligence that companies can be doing. Um, I think it's a fantastic way to uh, strengthen relationships, build new ones and open dialogue that perhaps hasn't happened before. When we talk about ESG in particular, I think boards as stewards of the company are being held more accountable. And the less transparent they are, the less investors trust that and investors are smart people you know most of the time <laughs> um and um i think uh you know stuff doesn't fly in the same way it would have done 5 10 15 years ago absolutely um, so i think really uh, look I, I think let's wrap it up um i think that's been a hugely enlightening uh, conversation and as i say um i think the work work we can we can provide to support issuers with these these reports is really really beneficial um you're so switched on with this stuff. You can tell you've been doing it for, for quite a while. You know, it's all, if you're natural at it, absolute natural. If you're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> and that is a wrap. If you'd like to find out more about Orient Capital or contact either Paolo or myself, I'll leave some information and links in the description. If you found this conversation useful, don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That way you won't miss an upload. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.